Welcome to Reconquest on the Crusade Premium Channel, part of the Veritas Radio Network. This is Brother Andre Marie coming to you from St. Benedict Center in Richmond, New Hampshire. Our websites are catholicism.org and reconquest.net. You can email me at bam at catholicism.org. That's bam at catholicism.org. You can also find me on Twitter at brother underscore Andre, and I'm easily found also on Facebook. Uh, this evening's episode is episode number 115, and I'm calling it The Beauty of Thy House, the Catholic Sanctuary. And my guest is Mr. Louis Tafari, about, about whom I'll say a few words in, in a moment. Um, the importance of this subject is something uh, that's, I think, too underappreciated, too, too underestimated. Uh, many Catholics have little idea of the profound spiritual treasury that exists in the Church's liturgical symbolism, and also the understanding of what the significance of all these things it are. Some of these things that are that exist in the sanctuary, for instance, the altar itself, the cruets, the bells, the com- communion rail that demarcates the sanctuary off from the rest of the church, lamps, altar cloths, thuribles, all of these things that you see in a church, some people understand that there's something functional about them, that there's something uh, mysterious about them, that they, that they indicate something transcendent or otherworldly, but they're too vaguely uh, informed about these things, or perhaps not informed at all about them, um, and they might appreciate the mysteriousness of it, but we don't people want people to be just mystified and impressed with something you know that's grand and mysterious. We want it would be good for people to understand more about the function of these things why they're there, what they do, and, um, and in, in many instances, what, what they symbolize that's of a much higher um, significance. So we want people to be able to penetrate into these mysteries uh, at least a little bit. Non-Catholics, of course, can be c- completely mystified and, and, and um, cl- clueless when they walk into a Catholic church and see these things which, if they grew up in a specifically non-liturgical um, Protestant uh, denomination, uh, they, they would be completely foreign to them. What they're used to is a, is a, is a, is a pulpit or a lectern and a book and a preacher and maybe some hymns but they're not used to liturgy. They're not used to sacrifice. They're not used to uh, something which uh, has this continuity with the sacrifices of the Old Testament, yet which is so much greater than any of the sacraments of the Old Testament, sacrifices of the Old Testament. I'm calling the show I Have Loved, uh, The the Beauty of Thy House, which comes from Psalm 25, verse 8. I have loved, O Lord, the beauty of thy house and the place where thy glory dwelleth, which is what uh, King David said about the Old Testament tabernacle, not even the the, the, the Old Testament uh, temple, which would be built uh, later by his own son, Solomon. Now, a few words about my guest before we start talking about the, the sanctuary of a Catholic church. And uh, he is Mr. Louis Tafari. Uh, he's been called the Gordon Ramsay of the sanctuary and sacristy. So any of you who like uh, this this apparently um, uh, insulting British uh, chef who's an expert who will tell you what you're doing wrong in your kitchen, um, you will appreciate that comparison. Uh, he has 20 years of experience in doing what he does, uh, which is that he's an instructor, author, speaker, and consultant on liturgical matters in the liturgical, in the traditional rather, Roman rites. In addition to this, he has extensive ceremonial experience. Um, He's a publisher. He has background in liturgical printing. 
Um, he's also instrumental in the revival of the traditional form of the Arch Confraternity of St. Stephen, which is an organization for altar boys, altar, altar servers. Um, so, I mean, he, he's as a writer and researcher, he's, he's contributed to various websites and other publications. Um, he gives instructions. He, he will come to your chapel and tell uh, your servers uh, how to serve better. He'll give special training sessions to masters of ceremonies. He's a consultant on liturgical matters. And this I know because when we were building our chapel here at St. Benedict Center in New Hampshire, um, he helped us out. He was a consultant. He, 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 he uh, provided professional services about um, specific appointments in our sanctuary so that we got it right. He's an expert. So he's also an expert master of ceremonies himself. He's served at numerous pontifical functions, that is, um, you know, church dedications, consecrations of altars, and ordinations. All these are ceremonies by a, a bishop, a, a pontiff, so they're pontifical. Um, and he's an expert in liturgical publishing and printing, and he's been involved in the publications of various calendars, um, various daily missals, and also specific uh, liturgical books for use in the altar and sacristy. Um, so uh, with that wide and uh, general experience, uh, he, he comes to us with a lot of knowledge. Um, he also has his own um, uh, podcast, um, Learning About the Roman uh, Liturgy, which is aired on Magnificat Radio. Uh, and um, we're going to have links, Magnificat Radio Online, we're going to have links to all these things so you can find all the resources, the books he has to offer, the services he has to offer, and everything else at reconquest.net and the show details page for, for this show. So without any further ado, I'd like to welcome Mr. Louis Tafari. Mr. Tafari, welcome. Thank you, brother. Wow, with that intro, do we have any time left? Oh, yeah. Sorry about that. I, 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 yeah, I get, I get a little loquacious sometimes. Um, I'm the same, so. Yeah. <laughs> so well, we'll, we'll go together like two peas in a pod here on this. Uh, great. Yeah, two peas. Thank in you a very much for having me and, and, and uh, um, asking me to come on your show. It's a pleasure and honor to be here. Oh, great. Well, thanks. We're, we're, glad, we're glad to have you. Now, why don't, why don't we just jump right in? The absolute most important thing in the Catholic sanctuary is, of course, the altar itself. It's the primary reason that the church itself exists, the building exists. So why don't we talk about what is the liturgical altar in, in, the, in the Catholic church? Okay, yeah, and that's that's great. Yeah, so the uh, the altar is is the reason, the primary reason why we build our beautiful uh, churches, whether they're small, large, or cathedral size. Um, the altar is mystically signifies our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone. Um, there's a lot of things that could be said about the altar. I would like to refer your listeners to one of the books that I reprinted. Um, it's called The Liturgical Altar by Jeffrey Webb. It's considered by many to be the Bible on the altar. And what he really delves into is the supernatural um, aspects of the Catholic altar. And therefore, if this is what the altar is, if this is how significant and important the altar is in our Christian Catholic lives, therefore, it's important that the various rules and prescriptions that the Church has given about the altar, its construction, its vesture, the appointments that go on it, its decorations, are faithfully observed. Um, so the altar itself, um, the, the most basic form of the altar is literally, uh, in the Roman tradition, it tends to be a, a Roman, uh, a rectangular style cube. 
Um, so I know for a lot of traditionally minded Catholics, they tend to think of these uh, of an altar as these big, giant, huge. Um, I like to call them wedding cake masterpieces, uh-huh. um, where there's you know, tons and tons of gradines and shelves and niches, and they go up 40 feet in the air, lots of statues and bowing angels and all that. But in reality, the most perfect and ideal form of the altar is what you see in St. Peter's Basilica, which is based, it's a freestanding rectangular uh, form, and it has a canopy over it. Um, so this altar was installed, in fact, by Pope Clement VIII, so it is the traditional form of the altar. Now, I know a lot of people might have a knee-jerk reaction to that right away. and say, oh, that's Novus Ordo. It's like, well, no, the Novus Ordo takes the right form but uses it in the wrong way with the wrong emphasis for the wrong reasons. So there, there's a problem there. Um, so the re- one reason why you want the altar to be freestanding, it's presumed that the altar will be freestanding, uh, it's not so it can be mass facing the people, but it's because the altar as itself is a unique and separate object in the church, which represents the body of Christ mystically. So if that is the body of Christ, you 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 ideally do not want that connected, the backside of it connected to a wall or anything. Mm-hmm. That is tolerated to happen. You can have what's called a, what's called a rererdos or retablo, a screen on the back um, that's connected, um, but. They prefer it to actually be separated even from that. Uh, the two reasons, again, so the first thing is because the altar is a unique object and it should be separated from everything else. Second is because it's presumed that uh, for a fixed stone altar, when the bishop goes to consecrate to anoint it with the holy oils and the special Gregorian water to wash it down, um, that he's going to go to the backside and anoint the backside as well. Um, so that's another reason why they, they want that uh, altar freestanding. Um, also, it may be a surprise to many that the canopy over the altar is actually considered to be an essential part of the uh, altar structure. And the reason for this is the canopy represents the royal dignity of Christ. Now, now b- b- uh, Mr. Tafari, before we get to the canopy, uh, any more about the canopy, can can I just throw in something about the altar itself? Absolutely. And, and the freestanding. You said this, but I just want to make it clear. When the liturgical revolution happened in the late 60s and early 70s, and, and there was this push for mass being said facing the people, uh, that, that, of course, necessitated freestanding altars. And as you say then, therefore, because of this, a lot of traditionalists think, have this knee-jerk reaction where they assume that the freestanding altar is for the versus pulpulum um, orientation of the mass and not uh, you know, as opposed to the facing east and saying the mass or facing the same direction the people are facing when they worship. Um, but, you know, in all of the Roman basilicas, you point out St. Peter, but the same is true as all, all the Roman basilicas yes. and the, the basilica well, structure and the, itself. And the Roman basilicas in themselves is a unique historical situation. Mm-hmm. Basically, what it came down to was in the late 19th century, early 20th century, um, various liturgical historians, um, they incorrectly read historical evidence that, well, since there's freestanding altars in all these ancient Roman basilicas, obviously mass must have been said once facing the people. And so therefore that was the ancient mode. And, and, and then they dealt in, delved into what's called antiquarianism, which is the novelty of returning to something just because it's an older practice and saying, well, therefore that's the most that would be the most ideal practice because that's what the apostles themselves did. That that's what they the conclusion that they reached. Now these liturgical historians had no modernist um, reasons behind this. They were simply misinterpreting this 
historically. Later, this got clarified because the more further research was done, and they discovered in various Vatican sacramentaries that, yes, the Pope was facing, uh, because most of these basilicas, it was the papal altar, the Pope was actually facing down the nave of the basilica because that's the way he had to face in order to face east, which was yes. the ancient um, orientation of facing that's what ad orientum means. It means to face the east because there's symbolic reasons behind that because the parousia, which is the coming of Christ at the end, he's supposed to come from the east. Um, the, the rising of the sun is a symbol of our Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection. All right, so those are some of the main symbolisms there. So in order to face this east, he had to turn and face down the nave. Well, the interesting thing is we find out in these va ancient Vatican sacramentaries that the archdeacon would actually chant uh, to the faithful to actually turn and face the east. So during some of the most important parts of the mass, they weren't even facing the altar. So, so, the, actually... so the people, so, so instead of the people looking at the priest's back, the priest, or in this case, the pope, was looking at the people's back. I mean, he, obviously he was looking at the altar, but over the altar, he's going to see the backs of the people where everybody's facing yes. east. Yes, okay. and they, they've also conclusively shown that, look, the apostles themselves would have ended up doing something similar of trying to face east, probably, because the Jews themselves were accustomed to turning towards Jerusalem to pray, mm -hmm. uh, just like we see Muslims turning towards Mecca. This is this is a natural act of religion to do this. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so the, the apostles themselves, also, the other thing, too, is this idea of facing the people in worship is alien to uh, our nature. Um, it's only with the Protestants who reject basically the natural order, the social order of things, that we see basically the philosophical side of prayer being overturned and turned upside down. It's only once we get into with them that man turns into himself, that humanism ends up reigning. And that's, of course, what the modernists adopted, and that's how they took the, that's why they wanted a freestanding altar for, for that reason, okay? But, um, so it seems it doesn't seem logical that the apostles themselves would have done something that would have been against the nature of what things were like in the ancient world. I it, mean, yeah. I, I don't know of a single uh, religion of the of an ancient civilization where the priest or the whoever the holy man, whatever you want, or the shaman ever turned and faced his flock. Yeah. They always faced their deity, whatever it was, and the people behind them were facing the same direction. So um, in any case, so again, that was an historical fallacy which got corrected later on. In fact, uh, Monsignor Klaus Gomber, uh, who was in the modern 20th century, uh, he wrote a section on that, and Michael Davies addressed this section this in one in one of his books as well too. Now the I, the, now, the, the, another, the the ori the, the or orientation that is the facing of the east the ad orientum position is something that's common to all the rites of the church. The, it is the Latin rite, the the Eastern rites, the Syriac rites. Saint John Damascene talks about Catholics turn Christians face the east when we pray. I mean this is this is of ancient institution. Yes. And it's, universal. It goes back to apostolic times, and that's why it seems, again, illogical to say, well, the apostles uh, were praying facing their flock. And in fact, we, we have pretty good evidence, some historical evidence to even show that, no, they, they certainly weren't uh, doing that. Mm -hmm. uh, one example is uh, there's some ancient texts that, talk, that, that seem to imply this. There's also the, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, the... Uh, 
<clears throat> house church example of Duro, Duros Europa uh, that's in, um, I believe that's in Iraq. It could be Iran. Don't quote me on that. It's one of those two countries there. Um, so uh, again, there's, there's, it, it's been pretty conclusively proven that, you know, that this was, this was, and, and it, yes, it's true that the popes continued in the basilicas because of the arrangement, the unique arrangement of the altars. Actually, and it's funny, one of the, one of the, um, one professor of liturgical archaeology, what he said was really what happened was um, it was with St. Peter's Basilica that this basilica mode of a freestanding altar facing down the nave kind of came into vogue in Rome. Uh, and the reason for that was because St. St. Peter's Basilica originally, you know, people need to remember that's not the Pope's Cathedral. No, that's St. John Lateran. The Pope's Cathedral yeah. is the Bishop of Rome. Yeah, St. John is actually the Archbasilica of the Holy Savior. Yeah. And... And so what they're saying is St. Peter's Basilica originally was a giant shrine because it housed the relics of St. Peter. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, because they have the confessio and everything, the way that it was built originally, it was more the emphasis there was more on its shrine capabilities than on its liturgical capabilities. And so in order to, to be able to do both, they had this unique situation because the way that the St. Peter's Basilica faced, it didn't. It, it wasn't it couldn't face east uh it had to it basically you had to face the it had to face west because the way the terrain was and everything mm -hmm. like that and the way saint peter's tomb was in the cemetery etc etc and then later this kind of this this particular roman basilica arrangement got copied throughout rome just to copy saint peter's it's kind of what 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 this is what one liturgical archaeologist uh postures which seems pretty logical to me mm -hmm. uh, so, but to make a, by the way, to make another point, it's interesting, this came out a couple of years ago, was uh, the texts, the rubrical texts themselves in the general instruction of the Roman Missal for the Novus Ordo Missae doesn't actually even prescribe a freestanding altar. If you look at the original rubrical text in Latin, which got mistranslated into English, it's basically saying, if possible, to use a freestanding altar. And uh, the reason for this is because the people who were writing it, even if they their penchant was for, for freestanding altars so they could do mass facing the people for their humanistic reasons, uh -huh. or even pastoral, even their even some of them weren't necessarily influenced by, by modernism or humanism. They saw it as, as a possible uh, pastoral uh, cure for some issues, which doesn't really work. But in any case, the instruction itself in the original Latin says, if possible, because these guys weren't stupid. They knew, well, we're not going to be able to take every single Catholic church and turn it, yeah. and turn yeah, it around. Altar, in fact, yeah. it was never was it was never so it was in fact it was never absolutely prescribed. It was just more desired, and he said, if it's possible. I see. So yeah, so it's funny because even the new mass, even though we tend to associate mass facing the people with the new mass, in fact, that wasn't the intention necessarily of the innovators themselves they were looking at it as well a lot of these places are going to end up saying this new mass facing the altar interesting interesting at orientum interesting uh you're listening to reconquest on the crusade premium channel part of the veritas <coughs> radio network this is brother andre marie and i'm interviewing uh, mr louis tafari a an expert in the traditional roman liturgy and on liturgical um, uh, appointments and functionality and rubrics and serving 
Um, so you, we were talking about the altar and the uh, and the um, uh, orientum uh, position of saying the mass. Now you had begun, and I, I kind of cut in uh, to talk about the canopy and the importance of the canopy. Why don't we Why don't we go there now? Sure. Uh, just a real quick remark first before I go into the the canopy, just to explore the altar a little bit more. Sure. Um, you essentially have two types of altar. You have a fixed altar, which is immovable, so it's made out of stone, can't be moved, can't be picked up and moved. And you have what's called a portable altar or uh, uh, unfixed altar, and that's one that would be made maybe out of plaster or wood. Um, in both cases, um, the top or mensa of the altar has to be of stone. And, of course, a fixed altar is made out of stone, too, and all the pieces have to be cemented together. There's a lot that I can talk about on that, which I won't. But the main point I wanted to mention is, Inside every altar, whether it's the mensa, the, which means the full table of the altar, or whether it's a little altar stone, which might be 15 by 15 inches square, there is inside that a little sepulcher, so a little hollowed out section. And in there, they secrete at least two relics of martyrs and then a relic of anybody else, and they can even add even more if they want to, and other little relics. And the reason for the martyrs is because they shed their blood for Christ, mm -hmm. so they're in this great union with Christ and his sacrifice. They also include little uh, three grains of incense in there, and that's because this goes back to the old uh, funerary rites um, f in the catacombs, and also the, even the Roman funerary rites where incense was used. Um, so there's a lot of neat things that happen here. And, and the top of the, the top, the mensa of the altar, as well as the altar stone, has five crosses engraved or incised. So uh, one in each corner, and then one in the middle, just, uh, you might say, above the sepulcher itself, which itself is covered with a little marble slab. It might be round, it might be square, rectangular, but that's cemented in place. The whole thing is anointed with sacred chrism. It's washed down with what's called Gregorian water. The crosses themselves are anointed with the chrism, and then they actually burn incense into these crosses. It's a magnificent ceremony to watch it, these, these flames shooting up from where these crosses are. And the show, to seal it, so to speak, as an altar of incense from which our prayers of the sacrifice and the prayers that we offer in union with that sacrifice rise up to God where it's accepted. And, of course, so, the five crosses would symbolize the five wounds of our Lord? Correct. Okay. Correct. There's a lot of other things that go on with the consecration of an altar. Uh, just a couple things. Is, so only only a, a fixed altar or an altar stone can actually be consecrated. And in order to consecrate a fixed altar in your church, two things. Uh, obviously, can't the altar can't be movable. It has to be cemented in place. The second thing is there can't be any debt or a mortgage on that church because uh. the, the church itself, if it were ever to get foreclosed upon, suddenly now you would have to— properly desecrate this altar, which the church wants to avoid as much as possible. That that sepulcher that you spoke of that contains the relics of two martyrs and at least uh, and one other saint and could have other things, and the three grains of incense, that sepulcher is called a sepulcher in reference to the fact that a, a body is being in, entombed here, at least part of a body by way of the first-class relics. Um, th there's a reference made to that when the priest goes up to say mass, he kisses the altar and he's, and he's mentioning the intercession of the, the, the saints who are here entombed, correct? Yes, he does that. In fact, there's actually several times wherein he uh, venerates the saints who have been entombed in the altar. And this is really neat because this goes back to uh, St. John's uh, book of the Apocalypse where he talks about, I saw 
underneath the altar those who were slain for the word of God, which pretty much predicts the Catholic practice of celebrating Mass over the tombs of the martyrs. That's how it began, was the tombs of the martyrs and the catacombs. And then later, of course, their, their bodies were brought back up into churches and placed in altars. Um, that's You see that all over, especially especially in Rome, where you can see the full body behind a grill, or there's, there's fragments of that body, the bones itself kept in a mm-hmm. casket inside the grill of the altar. Um, so there's several times during the Mass itself, the first one that's most significant is when when the priest goes up to the altar and he kisses the altar, he does that for several reasons. He does it, uh, A, because the altar represents Christ. And part of Christ is the members of the church, the members of Christ, church triumphant, uh, church suffering, and uh, church uh, militant, which is us. And of course, these saints are in such great union with Christ. They, are, they make up the members of Christ, of Christ's body, which we read about, especially in sacred scripture. So he's kissing the altar, which represents Christ, not only as the altar itself, mystically representing Christ's body, but also the relics of those saints entombed within him, so to speak. And the priest will also do this of every time he, he'll kiss the altar and turn to greet or, or, or say to the faithful, Dominus Fabiscum, the Lord be with you, and we respond back, and with thy spirit, or Dominus Ecum Spiritu Tuo. And what he's doing is communicating the peace of Christ, the grace of Christ, and that of the communion of the saints with us all at the same time. Oh. It's an absolutely beautiful, symbolic uh, action that takes place every time the priest kisses that altar, turns around, and says, Dominus Fabiscum. He'll do that several other, he'll actually also venerate the saints again, uh, during uh, um, the uh, at the at the offertory, so there's, there's there's he'll mention their names. He won't actually mention their names. He'll just say and of those enshrined here, implying the saints that are in the altar. So if you look in your missal, there's several times where you can see the the priest is actually referring to the saints in the altar, and that they may intercede for us at the sacrifice of the mass. So we see the beautiful union of the of the three parts of the church. Christ, of course, the head, and then us, we, the members, represented there by the the, the faithful who, who might be present, who are the church militants, the saints who are who are uh, entombed in the altar, being the church in the church triumphant, and of course the holy souls. They get referred to elsewhere in the mass in, in purgatory. Right. The church suffering. And in fact, another another aspect to this are we haven't gotten to this, but the the three altar cloths or linens that are supposed to vest the altar. Um, there's a practical and symbolic reason for that, but the symbolic reason is they represent the threefold nature of the church. Ah. They represent Christ's members. And in fact, in the admonition that the bishop gives to the subdeacons, um, he charges them with the washing of the linens, and he says, which do, which represent the members of Christ, represent the faithful. And it's interesting because he talks about that if the faithful ever need to be corrected, to wash them with the purity of doctrine. So he's talking about, he's referring to the washing and laundering of the altar linens, and he shows how, again, how the subdeacon also has a supernatural duty towards um, fraternal correction, if necessary, of the faithful of the church. I see. Wow. The beautiful. So he had a liturgical function, uh, a, 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 a laundering function, and also a teaching function. Yes. Yeah. Now, um, uh, can we... So to go back- yeah, if you want to go back to this canopy, so the reason in ancient times a canopy was always used to show the royalty or dignity of a person or of a thing. And so this is why since ancient times when we've had churches, a canopy was always placed over the altar. And we know, we know for instance, in the original St. Peter's Basilica, uh, the Emperor Constantine gave this huge, massive 
uh, silver, uh, what we'd call a chivalry or ciborium, that's the like the columned type of uh, of um, of canopy, which a lot of people like to call baldacchino, but really a baldacchino is actually one made out of fabric. Um, the, the 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 other type of um, of uh, canopy you would have is called a tester, which is suspended either from the roof or partially from the wall. Um, that could be made of cloth, wood, or or, or metal even. Um, so there's different types of canopies that can be used. But so the canopy has been an ancient representation of the of the kingly or royal and priestly dignity of the altar itself. Um, and it's prescribed by the rubrics to have a canopy. Unfortunately, um, this often gets omitted uh, on on altars. Uh, but again, if you go into most of the major uh, the most of the basilicas in Rome, you'll see this. Uh, the canopy, especially the chivalry type, the ciborium type, which again in, Latin, in Italian they tend to call the baldacchino, um, over these altars. Of course, the most famous example is the 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 one the Bernini bronze one at St. Peter's Basilica, which is absolutely enormous. It's it's like 82 feet high, which is taller than most churches in the United States of America. <laughs> now, even our little humble chapel here, thanks to you, has a tester in it. So, oh, so ours ours has that liturgical re- requirement where th- there's this canopy-like thing, which is the tester that comes down from the ceiling. And again, this is to show the importance of the person represented, the the, the, the royal the royal person represented, right? Exactly. In fact, uh, the canopy even is supposed to kind of go over the the top step slightly. Ideally, they even cover where the priest is standing, because, again, he represents Jesus Christ. At the, he is Christ at the altar. He's altar Christus, mm-hmm. the, another Christ at the altar. So uh, the, the, technically, it shouldn't just cover just the altar, but even, even the top step, which is uh, often called the predella from the Italian word. Now, now, can we? Um, I don't know where the best place is to go after we've talked about the altar and uh, the the canopy. But um, maybe we should talk some about the appointments of the altar. Sure, sure. Since we're focused on the altar right now, and then we can expand out to the sanctuary. So, um, uh, one of the most important items on the altar is the altar cross or crucifix. And in fact, in your church on your high altar. The altar crucifix is supposed to be the primary or most important image in your entire church. Um, and that can be made of metal. It can be made of uh, wood. It can be made of stone. It could be a painting that's on the wall. It can be actually uh, attached to the back of the altar. It could be on the altar itself. It could be suspended from the canopy, which is the ancient way of doing it. It should not be placed on the tabernacle, though. And I'll talk about that in just a minute why. Um so, and in fact, you know, we're getting into uh, uh, Lent now. It's right around the corner. And, and of course, in Passion Tide, we have that favorite Catholic custom of veiling our statues. But the reason you're veiling your statues is because they're veiling the cross. Uh-huh. And the reason they're veiling the cross is because originally um, the cross itself did not have the body of Christ represented in a, in a crucified manner. In fact, usually it's just a cross. It was heavily jeweled and gilded. It's a magnificent uh, piece uh, that was made. And what they would do is um, they were glorifying the magnificence of the cross, the victory of the cross, the, the symbol of the cross as a trophy. And so what they did in ancient times is they would cover this with a violet veil to show that we're now um, mourning what Christ is going to have to, we're, we're sorrowing over what Christ is going to have to do to redeem us. And we're not glorying in, in it so much until we get till um, Easter. Um, and so later, um, it wasn't until about five, 600 A.D., 
that you suddenly see um, a corpus on the cross and in a crucified manner. In fact, when the crucified Christ first starts showing up on crosses, uh, some people are actually quite scandalized by this. How dare you show Christ in his agony? You should be showing him triumphant. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, later, you know, there were various bishops that said, no, this is fine. There's nothing wrong with this. And, of course, that became the norm. And the reason why we want a crucified cross on our crucified Christ on a cross today is because um, it connects it with the holy sacrifice that actually mm-hmm. takes place on the altar. Because the altar itself is the cross. It's another Calvary, it, but in an unbloody fashion. So we have the cross, and that's, of course, always in the center um, of, of the altar there. Then from that, we have the candles. And on a high altar, you're typically going to have six candles. Um, ideally, they're going to be on uh, arrayed in a row in line with the cross uh, at the back side of the altar. Um, just a quick word, um, some altars have what's called a gradine. Uh, that's is- like, like a low shelf, small shelf. And that's allowed and that's tolerated. They prefer to do it without a gradine, but it is tolerated to have at least one gradine. Unfortunately, some altars end up having multiple sets of shelves, which what it tends to do there is you tend to lose focus of the altar itself, and you just see all these gradines and niches and everything. Yeah, the altar just becomes a basis for this much more grand and glorious structure that's above it. Yeah, and what happens is the altar becomes more of a devotional thing than the actual sacrificial uh, focal point, the liturgical focal point. And it's really, really important that uh, that the altar becomes our focus. Um, and not so much as Grando's architectural masterpiece that someone, you know, spent, yeah, they spent hundreds of hours carving this thing or whatever. But, you know, as it's mentioned in the liturgical altar, they said artistically these things are very beautifully, but liturgically they're not. Because what happens? You lose focus of, I would I would say this too, of when in churches where you've been where you have just a plain, simple altar that's beautifully decked out. You can you can just focus on those ceremonies so much more of what the priest is doing, whereas if it's this huge neo gothic uh, you know elaborate thing, suddenly it just gets lost. It mm-hmm. just gets lost amongst all because you're so busy concentrating all the corbels and the columns and the niches and the little details and all that that you kind of lose focus and you lose focus of the priest and what he's doing. And you even lose focus of the tabernacle, which we're going to talk about in just a second. The candles themselves. Um, there's a great history behind that, um, which I don't have time to really go into in this in this show. Um, but uh, the candles are there because they uh, they have a practical reason, which was to illuminate the church. But mystically, they also symbolize the light of Christ. And uh, in a certain sense, the beeswax being burnt signifies, you might say, even the good the good odor of Christ. So that mm-hmm. that that symbolism really belongs to the incense, especially. Um, and how many candles you light is going to so typical practice in the United States is you light six candles for the solemn mass or a high mass, any sung mass basically, and you'd light two candles for a low mass, possibly four for some greater occasions. Now that being said, on greater festivities, you can certainly have multiple candles around your sanctuary. They have what's called standard candles, which are basically these very tall. Candles are placed on the pavement, on like the perimeters of the sanctuary, or you might have some standing candelabra, and that's totally allowed. And that's a, a very good old practice to do because uh, the candles are, help to actually signify the solemnity and the festivity. Um, to, to give another example, the use of the torchbearers at Solomon High Masses, 
that's precisely why they're there to show greater honor to Christ. Isn't isn't I have read that the significance of the candle, just like the significance of incense, is largely to 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 show the presence of Christ. It's to announce His presence, and this would be why you'd have the. This would be why you'd have the torches or the or the additional candles for the for the um, sanctus for the for the uh, canon of the mass. Yes, there there that definitely is part of it, and. Um, just to give a quick note, the practice of the use of candles and incense, especially for processions, and this goes not only for processing into the church before Mass, processing out, but also for the gospel procession, this, as well as other types of processions we have, too, that are actually liturgical, this actually comes from uh, a civil usage of the, of the Imperial Roman Empire, where the highest civil dignitaries had the privileges of being— uh, when they were walking through the streets, especially at night, they could be preceded by someone carrying incense and torches. And this privilege was given by the emperor to the bishops to show their dignity and their status vis-a-vis -vis the Roman Empire. And then later this got transferred into the mass, and these candles became, uh, first they were just born into and placed maybe on the altar or around the altar or near the altar, and this included the cross as well. And then later they ended up being on the altar itself. We still have this use of the acolytes carrying candles of the gospel, or for a processional recessional, as well as the use of crossbear. This all comes from that, from that, there's a really neat history behind this that came from that civil practice, that secular practice of the Roman Empire. So we go from announcing the importance of an, uh, the, the announcing the arrival of an important civil personage to an ecclesiastical personage to saying, okay, it's really announcing the presence of Christ. Yes, or or in this case, you know, it's it ended up getting transferred to the use of uh, to show the dignity of the bishop, okay. and then of course to cry, and then from that to cry. They said, "Well, we're going to give this to the bishop. Of course, we're going to give it to Christ in the Book of the Gospels. Of course, we're going to give it to Christ at the consecration." So eventually, that overflowed because remember, before the use of the bishop processing or was processing through the city, and then later they took that into always well, processing through the city to go to the church to celebrate mass. So this is where the great stational church practice came from with the Pope, especially in Rome. Um, so it's really just. Really fascinating, really neat. And in fact, to be honest, a lot, I would say the majority of ceremonial that we have in the use of whether it's in the West or in the East, it all comes from imperial practices. Mm -hmm. In fact, all of our little ceremonial etiquette, it comes from etiquette of the, of the royal court. That's mm -hmm. where it's derived from. And they decide, well, if we give it to a person of importance, we're going to give it to Christ, we're going to give it to his ministers. Yeah, great. You're listening to Reconquest and the Crusade Premium Channel, part of the Veritas Radio Network. This is Brother Andre Marie, and I am uh, in interviewing Mr. Louis Tafari of Romanitas Press, a l liturgical expert in, in, in any in, in number of a angles and aspects of the traditional Roman liturgy. Um, so, Mr. Tafari, I don't know where you want to go from here, but we talked about the altar, we talked about the canopy, we talked about candles, and we talked a little bit about um, pr processions. Um, I, would, I would like to—one of my favorite subjects is vesting the altar. And great. It, it, it's a subject I can talk on for a couple hours, but it, just to briefly, the, the altar, because it's Christ, it mystically symbolizes Christ, because of the dignity that belongs to the altar, it's the most important object in our church— uh, after the Blessed Sacrament, um, it's supposed to be royally vest. It's supposed to be vested with royal vesture. Um, the first one is the what covers the top and the sides of the altar, which are the altar cloths made out of linen. Uh, the use of linen goes back to uh, the practice in ancient civilization, where linen was a rather expensive material, 
and was always associated with the wealthy and the nobility. Um, linen also has some very excellent natural properties. For instance, it can absorb up to 20% of its weight and still feel perfectly dry, especially important in damp climates and also for uh, one of the practical usages of the three altar cloths, which I'll talk about in just a second here. Um, the linen also, of course, is associated with the burial shroud of our Lord Jesus Christ, um, which is the Holy Shroud of Turin, which has been proven over and over again to be authentic. Um, it's not a medieval fake. That's absolutely impossible. It's yeah, a 3D utterly, image, utterly actually, impossible. of our Lord, which was not even known at that time. The, yeah, that, 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 that theory <clears throat> has been completely shot to Hades. It's been demolished so many times it isn't funny, just like the Tilma of Our Lady of Guadalupe. So anyways, um, so we also um, have three cloths, as I mentioned earlier, for the symbolic reason that it represents um, the church triumphant, church suffering, and church militant, the threefold nature of church. Of course, the Holy Trinity can be inferred from that as well. The practical reason why we have three cloths on there is if the uh, contents of the chalice after its consecration, which is now the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, if that were to accidentally tip over, three cloths, three linen cloths are sufficient to absorb the contents so it won't accidentally drip on the ground uh-huh. onto the floor. And that's, that's the main reason why they have three cloths on there, um, the practical reason for that. Um, so it took some time before three cloths became the rule. Um, you know, one of the things about the liturgy and its history is you can never pinpoint exactly, well, this is how it was done exactly in all places at all times. It wasn't like that. It didn't start becoming like that until after the Council of Trent began to really standardize things, which was in 1570. And even then, it still took a little while for some things to get defined and then take root and be implemented. The other vesture of the altar, which unfortunately gets missed a lot, is called the antependium or, or altar frontal. And antependium means just be, to be hung in front of, or suspended in front of. And this is usually like a vestment piece, like the chasuble. It's a beautiful piece, it could be made out of silk, it could be made out of other decorative fabrics. Usually the color of the uh, antependium will match the color of the mass. So you could have one color all year round or one that matches the season. There's different varieties. And the reason, again, is because it's Christ. It's Christ's body, and as king and as priest, we want to vest him royally. And what's really neat about this is if you're accustomed to seeing your altar vested all the time, first it acts as a great focal point at the altar. Okay, so the altar really just stands out when you vest it with an antipendium, you know, whether it's in violet, red, green, white, gold. Um, but imagine your vest, you, know, you see your, all, all your altar, you don't even see all year long. All you see is the antipendium on there, whatever color it may be. But come Holy Thursday, come the, come the Last Supper Mass of Holy Thursday. After the Mass, we have the ceremony of stripping the altar. They call it the denuding of the altar, actually, in Latin. And the reason is, the main reason was because historically, uh, after the sacred ceremonies were over, they were to remove everything from the altar, and that was actually part of the ceremony. Now that's done after Mass, outside of the ceremony. Symbolically, it represents the stripping of our Lord's body. Uh-huh. So now you suddenly see the altar cloths come off the top and the sides, and suddenly they remove the antipendium, and you see the altar completely bare, the front of the altar completely bare for the first time. What an, what a dramatic impact that has. And that's the way it is here, Mr. Tafari. We, 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 have, we, we keep the antipendium on all, all, all year, and then on Holy Thursday, after the, after the, uh, 
that mass, there is the, uh, the, the stripping of the altar, as you say, and the, our altar, which is actually very physically attractive itself, it's, a, it's kind of a green marble, mm-hmm. um, is for the, for the only time all year now visible to the faithful. And people might ask, well, what if we have a beautiful motif on the friar altar? It's particularly nice looking. And it's like, yeah, sacred congregation rights did rule. That could be tolerated to leave it bare. But they said, no, what's the spirit of the matter? And that's what uh, Jeffrey Webb also um, uh, mentions in his book, The Liturgical Altar. You know, yeah, you may have a toleration for doing that. But if you understand that that altar is Christ mystically, wouldn't you rather vest it? to show the dignity that belongs to Christ's body. And it's funny because even in the Ceremoniali Episcoporum, which is an official liturgical rubrical book, um, they state there, even even if you didn't vest, they presume you always vested, but even if you didn't, they do prescribe it to be vested at least on greater festivities. So you can see what the spirit here is on vesting the altar in this Mm -hmm. manner. I would say one other thing, too. Unfortunately, you see a lot of times where people, uh, the altar linens, the white linens, they have this lace hanging over the front. And that's not actually even prescribed. In fact, the rubrices are kind of against that, not only because often an inferior type of linen gets used, but more so because it it makes the altar end up looking frumpy. um, And it interferes with the uh, clean look of the antipendium, the clean clean box look of the altar, you might say, um, that is given by these vesture. Um, so they prefer that the linen just comes just to the edge uh, on the top and on the sides. And when you see an altar vested like that, um, boy, does it stand out. And boy, does it look nice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah, some people some people like to throw lace everywhere, I think. There's a certain... <laughs> yeah, a certain... there's a little too much about lace. I'm a little more monastic uh, when it comes to things. Uh, you know, it's like uh, lace can be nice once in a while in moderation, but uh, we shouldn't be trying to like... Uh, to reconstruct uh, the uh, the uh, the uh, coronation papal mass of Pope John the Twenty Third that was done in 1958 that you can see on YouTube, where everyone's wearing all this lacy fro. I mean, that's you know they're the, they're part of the papal court and everything, and they're going to pull out all the stops for that. But you know, in a regular parish, everyday Sunday thing, you know, it's like you know, keep it simple. It looks beautiful. I, I love a plain looking surplus. It just there's in fact the rubricists will say there's nothing more elegant looking than a plain linen surplus. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And of course, the surplus is what the servers wear over the cassock. Yeah, or even even the alb, you might say, even. Okay, now, there, there's a, there, we've got about nine minutes, uh, Mr. Tafari, and um, there's there's one thing that I realize it's not the sanctuary proper, but it but I believe that the significance of it uh, would is, is important to be known by our audience, and I think it's a good landing place perhaps towards the end here, and that is the communion rail itself. Mm-hmm. Now there's there's a there's a there's a functionality to so can you talk about the functionality of the communion rail or architecturally and liturgically and and possibly any sure. symbolism. Uh, yeah, so communion rail, and first thing should be noted, it hasn't been absolutely prescribed to have a communion rail. In fact, you'll see in the most of the major basilicas of Rome uh, at their high altars, there is no communion rail, though you'll see them in their side altars or in some of their chapels. Um, communion rail is really a, uh, has a great practical function. Um, the first one, obviously, um, it's a good place for people to kneel in front of to receive Holy Communion. Uh, makes it very practical, especially you know for the elderly and such. The other thing is it creates a separation between um, the sanctuary and the nave, um, which visually is 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 important as well as you might even say psychologically, um, especially in this day and age where 
you know, because of the influence of the new mass, there, there tends to be no separation at all between the sacred areas. Uh, I mean, the whole church itself is sacred, but of course you have the holy, you know, like in the temple, mm-hmm. and then you have the holy of holies where none dare tread. Um, you know, it's like, no, if you enter the sanctuary as a layperson, you're not going to get struck dead by lightning, okay? Like might have happened at the Temple <laughs> of Jerusalem. But, uh, you know, at the same point, it's like we understand that this is a much greater sacred space and, and it's reserved to, um, you know, to certain people for certain reasons. Uh, and the, in a practical sense as well, too, the communion rail also helps. Like, so for instance, a lot of people aren't aware of this, but it's actually, it was still prescribed up until 1962 to use what's called a communion cloth. And that could be done in several different ways. Uh, two acolytes could hold a taunt, or it was it was attached to the back of the rail, and it could be flipped over, or it was kind of rolled over across the rail. Um, the main thing is it goes over the rail, and the rail itself, the communion rail, is considered to be an extension of the altar table. Okay, the idea of the mensa, which means table in Latin. So I'm not talking about a Novus Ordo idea. I'm talking about yeah. the table top of the altar is called the table. And this, this is a correct term to use. And from this table, the, where the mystical banquet takes place, that Christ himself gives himself to us to communicate with corporally. Okay, so the idea is when you're receiving communion, you're actually receiving from the altar itself. The altar is giving it to you. Okay, and the communion, the communion rail is an extension of that altar. And this is another reason why it's supposed to be veiled, or you might say covered, with a communion cloth that has to be made out of linen. Now, a caveat, by the way, I know a lot of people think, well, the proper practice is to place your, your hands underneath the cloth, actually handle the cloth. And I know there were some pre-Vatican II manuals that actually described it that way, but it's actually not supposed to be done that way. The rubricists do not want it done that way. They spoke out against that in pre-Vatican II rubrical manuals. And the reason is because you interfere with the flat surface of the communion cloth, which could cause the communion host to basically slide down the ski slope. I see. If you're so, placing your hand, and, and I've seen this, I've actually witnessed this uh, happening take place. Um, later in 1929, the communion plate, or commu- the communion plate came into vogue. Originally, the, the communicants would pass it to themselves, chin to chin to chin to chin. Later, the acolyte got the job of doing that, which I think is a far better way to do it because that way it doesn't get accidentally tipped and if there's any sacred fragments on that communion plate, it can't fall on the ground. But the communion cloth was, in fact, the State Congregation Rites made a clarification in the same year of 1929 saying, we prescribe the use of the communion plate, but we also prescribe the continued use of the communion cloth. It's, you're not dispensed to use with that. And the Rituale Romanum, or the Roman ritual, continues to prescribe that all the way up to 1962. Interesting. I and, didn't know that. I, and the the uh, so because not a lot of traditional chapels in this country, in my experience, use the use the uh, uh, cloth at the altar rail. I've seen it. Uh, the Institute of Christ the King, I think, likes to use that. Uh, they certainly right. Use... I've tried to promote it wherever I go. In our parish, we do it. Um, still haven't gotten faithful. I mean, there, there's two other reasons why you don't want people handling that cloth. I mean, you got hundreds of hands. It's going to dirty it, soil it, and it could possibly damage it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, people are tugging on it, whatever. Uh, it's not that you can't actually touch it. It's just that, you know, the communion cloth, the communion rail, ideally would be about a foot wide, foot deep. And the re- and then so we've got the cloth on top of that. If the host were to ac- accidentally fall, that's enough surface yeah, to catch it to, to stop the host it. from yeah. falling on the ground. Now, now it would what what you said. I had never actually heard this before. The the idea that the altar rail f- functions as an extension of the mensa, that is the table top 
part of the altar. Um, and, and here, of course, is the mystical banquet taking place in the rite of communion. Uh, therefore, this liturgical uh, uh, communion cloth is an extension of the linen that's on top of the altar. Right. And in fact, you can take one more step why people shouldn't touch it, because in ancient times, uh, not even nuns could touch the altar cloths, only those ordained in major orders. So subdeacon, deacon, priest. Yeah, they were the only ones. Now later the church laxened that rule, but, you know, it, it kind of, again, the idea is just, you know, there's no need for it. And, and the thing is holding it underneath your chin or holding it slightly in front of you defeats the purpose because you've got everyone, imagine you've got everybody of different heights holding it at different heights. Suddenly now the communion cloth, instead of being this flat surface that has friction to it. It's a roller coaster. It's a roller coaster. And literally <laughs> yeah. the, when the host hits that, when the host hits that cloth, whoosh, goes right down like a ski slope. And, and I've, 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 I've unfortunately witnessed this as an altar server. Oh my goodness. While holding a communion plate. It missed the plate. I was, I was the one holding the plate. It missed the plate, it slid right down the slope, right onto the floor inside the sanctuary, and then we had to go through the whole thing of purifying, blah, blah, blah. So it's like you've just defeated the whole purpose of why that communion cloth is there. So the, 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 we see that there's a lot of symbolism to all of these things, yet we see that in each instance, everything is, has a practical purpose. Right, so, and what I love about the church, the Roman Catholic Church, is she always gives you a practical reason and then a supernatural reason for doing things. And a perfect example is the fasting, abstain, abstaining from meat. Okay, so we abstain because, you know, to do penance and to, 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 uh, to, uh, um, to uh, mortify ourselves and get ourselves ready. And then suddenly, you know, what, what was it? I remember, what was it, 10, 15 years ago? Big giant health news announcement, eating fish once a week. Guess what? It's healthy for you. It can prevent this and this and this. Uh-huh. We're like, duh, we're Roman Catholics. Yeah. We've been doing this for centuries. And you also There's, you also have all this these benefits, health health fads, uh, which, which involve fasting and, you know, uh, these different purges and all these things. Yeah. Well, we purge ourselves at Lent and Advent. Yeah. <laughs> and on number days and rogation days. And, and, you know, if you could join a third order, sometimes it didn't even include a Wednesday and a Saturday in addition to the traditional Friday uh, fasting and abstinence, if you follow that. Okay. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting how the, the church had all these periodic, you know, it's like, yes, there was a supernatural reason, but it also helps us practically, naturally. Yeah. So, for, so, so liturgically, form fits function, yet uh, the form is also to be beautiful. Uh, and, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. As, as befits the, the, the dignity of the Well, and here's the, the other thing, itself. too, is truth begets beauty. Yeah. That's the whole thing. Uh, beauty is an aspect of truth. Uh, it's not the, and unfortunately, people tend sometimes, uh, comes to traditional mass, tend to focus more on the, on the beauty. It's like, well, the reason it's beautiful, the reason it's sane, the reason it's orderly, the reason we don't have all these you know, enormous problems and abuses and whatever is because the traditional mass is first and foremost orthodox. It's focused on truth. Yeah. They, they didn't compromise anything. Um, you know, that, that's, that's where everything, all the underlying problems of the new mass come from. It's because it, they ended up making it heterodox, ecumenical, the placate yeah. Protestants. They even brought in six Protestants to help create a new mass. It's like, mm. we want your input. What would you like to see in our, in our new mass that we're creating? Yeah. Okay, well, here's our ideas. Well, Mr. Tafari, we have, I'm afraid, run out of time. 
Um, but I'm I'm very grateful that you were able to join me, and uh, I hope that our guests have appreciated all this and learned a lot. So th- thanks very much. You've been listening to Reconquest on the Crusade Premium Channel, part of the Veritas Radio Network. God bless and Mary keep you. <laughs>